You are listening to Ukraine 242. We bring you interview subjects from all walks of life in wartime in Ukraine. Thanks to all our listeners around the world. Here is your host, Anne Levin. Welcome to Ukraine 242, an exploration of the ongoing Russian invasion of Ukraine, featuring key people on the ground in Ukraine and around the world. I am Anne Levine, reporting from WOMR in Provincetown, Massachusetts. Our guest is Irina Matvyshin, a video reporter at the Kyiv Independent. She previously worked as a freelance journalist with the BBC, NPR, and other media outlets. She was an analyst, video producer, and project coordinator at Ukraine World. Irina holds a master's degree in human rights from the global campus of human rights in Europe. Irina Matvyshin, welcome to Ukraine 242. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. The Nova Hakovka Dam was blown up a few days ago. I thank you so much for taking the time out of what must be an extraordinarily difficult and busy moment for you. How was that Nova Hakovka Dam blown up? How was that done? It was blown up by Russians. They were controlling the dam since the beginning of the full-scale invasion. There are certain discrepancies in how it was done, but obviously, as all Ukrainians, it's logic and the knowledge of context that this uh, dam was blown up by the Russians. There were no signs that it was hit by a missile or any other system. It would be simply impossible. We saw throughout these days that a lot of international media were trying to create this illusional balance, saying, oh, each side blames each other, not trying to analyze the context and the history of Russia's blackmailing on this dam. And actually, it turned out that it's Russia who blew up, and we knew it from the beginning. This confusion that international media was trying to create actually turned out to be artificial. And it's pretty obvious that it's Russia who did it. Ukraine had no access and it was in no proximity to the dam. And even if, let's say, in some parallel reality, Ukraine wanted to do it, it would be impossible just because this dam was constructed in a way that it would withstand the nuclear disaster or nuclear attack, and no missile would be able to do this kind of damage. The local population was not warned about the dam, but there are reports that the Russian military have known about it. And we even saw the intercepted call from the Russians saying that they blew up the dam. Russians are being affected by this dam blowing up, correct? Yes. So why would Russia blow up a dam that will hurt their own citizens? Well, it's pretty clear from what we've seen throughout this full-scale war that Russia completely disregards human life and they don't care about their own people. We've seen thousands of Russian soldiers just being abandoned in the fields and nobody comes to pick them up or sometimes nobody even tries to provide medical help to them at the front line. So why would they care about soldiers on this occupied territory if they saw benefit in flooding Ukraine? 
Ukraine and causing this complete humanitarian catastrophe. There were reports that vehicles and ammunition was left behind, but according to some data, these soldiers managed to escape because they knew about it. But the situation is different for occupied locals because they were not warned and many of these people were just stuck on the rooftops. Many drowned. There were reports of bodies floating on the Dnipro River already. And I'm shocked, but I'm not surprised that Russia did it to the population because they don't care about people, neither their own nor Ukrainians. And I don't think they completely um, understood the situation and the consequences of what they were doing. There are reports that other jams have been hit. Can you tell me about that? I don't know much about the other dam being hit. Uh, They were trying to disrupt the Zaporizhia dam. But so far, everything is focused on the Kahoka Dam since it's a major problem right now and it affects different regions. And we already see the consequences in the Black Sea. This act is being called Ecocide. Please describe what that means. Ecocide is causing tremendous harm on ecosystems and environmental life of the country that have long-term consequences and eventually cause complete destruction or extinction of certain species. And that's what we are seeing happening right now. We can already call it ecocide. This term is established and inscripted in the Ukrainian constitution. But the problem arises when we speak about international law, because so far the international community has no consensus on that term that can bring Russia into account for its ecological crimes against the environment. But what we see in Ukraine right now is completely ecocide, because you you can see from pictures and videos that water rose several meters above the ground, and already we see that thousands of animals, not only pets, but wild animals, have drowned. They had no no way to escape. A, A lot of flora and fauna that was protected in this region is killed, basically. And it will have long-term consequences. And also water pollution. The water pollution also means that people will not have access to water and agriculture will suffer. So it's, it's a complete ecocide. And Ukrainian lawmakers in environmental issues are already working on filing this case. What are the citizens of the flooded area doing about drinking water? Well, for now, as I've seen, there is drinking water in Kherson, but according to some estimates, one million people will have problems with access to water in general. And the Ukrainian government is already thinking how to find alternative ways to make water supply sustainable. This reservoir was a source of water for many regions and destruction of the dam affects Kherson Oblast and Mykolaiv Oblast and maybe others and also Russia as well. Russia will also suffer from it ecologically speaking and it will be a problem for other countries because waters are connected. There are reports that Russia is shelling this flooded area. Why are they doing that? What does that accomplish? Well, Russia is doing what it's doing best, terrorizing the population, not allowing people to evacuate. They started to shell evacuation points 
immediately when people mobilized to help civilians and rescue animals. And yesterday we've seen horrible videos when evacuation points were targeted directly. A lot of my colleagues who were working on the ground spent an hour in trenches with state emergency service because they could not even find a place to shelter and, and they were completely shelled. Russia is precisely targeting civilians to cause as much damage as is possible and to cause casualties among the civilians. And it's not new. It's just like super cynical that it happens also during the evacuation of people who've already almost drowned or who already lost their houses and everything they've had. What does the destruction and the flooding mean for the future of Ukraine, but also of Europe? Well, for Ukraine, it's a huge problem for decades. It means the destruction of whole local ecosystems. Kherson region is known for reservations, for preserving natural places that had a lot of very distinctive rare species of flora and fauna, which were protected by international community. But eventually this protection didn't work and it's hard to estimate the damage right now. But for now, everyone says that this will be a huge problem for Ukraine for decades. And we don't know if Ukraine will be able to recover from that. What I saw recently is also that these waters go to the Black Sea. And we should understand that there was a lot of oil in the dam that was also released and now it goes into the sea. So nobody is protected. Nobody is isolated from Ukraine because all waters are interconnected. And of course, the sea will be polluted and a lot of explosives are carried away also to the sea, mines. And it's a huge ecological issue. It's difficult to estimate right now, but we all know that it's great. As you mentioned before, the Russians have threatened nuclear power plant Zaporizhia. Isn't it being cooled by the water? Yeah. Yeah, okay. One of the reactors is being cooled by the water coming from this reservoir. This is like the worst possible scenario that this reactor will not be able to cool down. Some say that since Ukraine is not actively using a lot of electricity during the summer, this problem might be avoided. At the same time, my concern is, and a lot of, of a lot of Ukrainians, is the weak reaction of the international community and the fact that so many red lines were crossed and this dam was kind of like a big moment to react. But still, the reaction was very vague and delayed. And this might be a signal for Russia to continue do what it wants to continue abusing the international regulations, law, and common sense. And like, if it sees that the world didn't react properly and doesn't want to hold Russia accountable for what it did to the dam, it could be a proliferation of the nuclear disaster. The thing is that Ukrainians, including the president of Ukraine, were talking about Russian blackmailing about the dam months before and last year this president Zelensky asked the international community to do something to warn Russia to warn that Russia will face consequences but nobody did anything 
I mean, international organizations showed that they are impotent in this kind of situation. When everything happened, the UN made a post on the same day that it was celebrating the Russian language day. Unbelievably cynical and many Ukrainians thought it was a joke, but actually not. And we saw that the reaction was super delayed and no strict condemnation and no plan what has to be done to deal with this issue. And I think Russia might perceive this weak reaction as a green light. And that's the most dangerous thing, except for the possibility of the reactor not to be able to cool down. What would be an appropriate reaction from Ukraine's Western allies to this blown-up Nova Kakhovka? First of all, regarding the governments, I think the problem persists that Russia does not feel that it can be punished. And nobody said that Russia will face consequences now. Nobody spoke about sanctions, I don't know, further isolation, or nobody said about the red line. It's still very blurred, and that's the most dangerous thing. Governments should wake up and realize that the red line was already crossed and something should be done because the next step could be the nuclear disaster. And if it happens, it will be too late. So I don't see how they can act now, to be honest, because I'm not sure if anyone wants to confront Russia directly by stepping in this war, but what they could have done, they could have sent all the weapons that is available to liberate territories and not to allow Russia to do anything further on the Ukrainian territories. Why does the UN seem so hesitant to take action? I I think the UN is outdated in its concept and also politicized, even though they say that they are politically neutral, but giving a platform for a country that is literally committing the worst crimes for more than a year is political. And it's political not in a good way. And the fact that Russia is still in the UN Security Council is something unbelievable. I think that the, the least they could do is to kick Russia out of the Security Council. But that's not done. And I think that's how this organization discredits itself. To be honest, I think that the war in Ukraine puts like a cross on on the image of the UN at this point. What are you doing today regarding the disaster at the dam? Well, I'm still working as a journalist. I spoke to some experts on environmental law and um, specialized in ecocide and the dam issues. And I will make an explainer about the consequences of everything that is happening, but also in general about Russia's crimes against nature in Ukraine. Do you know when that might be coming? I hope in a week there are so many news and we were trying to drag as much attention as possible at the Kiev Independent because we saw that many in the West just ignore what has happened, like nothing really happened. But actually, experts say by the scale of damage that this event is not better than a nuclear attack. You are listening to Ukraine 242. 
This is Anne Levine from WOMR in Provincetown, Massachusetts, with our guest Irina Matvishin, a video reporter at the Kiev Independent. Irina Matvishin, I understand that you just returned from the Media Literacy Symposium in Poland. Can you tell us about the focus of the symposium? It was a networking event, which was quite interesting. It's quite a long trip, even though Poland is close, but Wroclaw is like on the opposite side near the German border. And it takes uh, some time to get out of Ukraine, and it took uh, literally a full day to get there. But it was quite interesting because I don't often work or interact with journalists from Eastern Europe. And this symposium was made for networking with journalists. So I met a lot of people who are covering Ukraine, Russia, but also Poland, uh, Romania, Moldova, Baltic countries. And to meet like-minded people, it was about the development of independent media in uh, challenging times how to sustain your work despite the hardship. So yeah, it was quite interesting. How important is independent media right now for Ukraine and for surrounding countries? And of course, it's important everywhere. And we are in a minority, I guess. But people who work in independent media are very idea-driven. And I think that they are more and more of these people because in such challenging times like the war or let's say in other countries more like the rise of authoritarian forces or right-wing forces it's important to keep the balance and to hold the politicians accountable on what they're saying and what they're presenting as ideas for people to vote for I think it's crucial for every country, whether it's the U.S. or small European country, it doesn't matter. It's important for critical thinking, for political responsibility, as well as for, I don't know, the country at worst, as Ukraine is. We have a national marathon on our TV, which has monopolized by the government as some kind of state propaganda during the war. But at the same time, Ukraine is an example of independent media variety. Since the Euromaidan revolution, the civil society has been quite strong and independent journalism has been growing. And that's a positive tendency. And during the war, it's a crucial asset because we have access to different kinds of information. And if you don't only watch TV, you can find what's going on like without rosy glasses. So... I mean, we don't want to become Russia in no way. And uh, critical independent media is a key thing to to stay sane and to stay old-minded, not to go into extremes. I'm going to switch focus here to a fascinating profile that you did of an English photographer who is working with a team to evacuate Ukrainian civilians from the front lines his name is Ignatiev Ivlev York. Tell us about mm-hmm. him and his mission. He's an amazing individual. I have been following him since he started to evacuate civilians from the front lines a year ago since the full scale invasion began. And I was impressed by what he has been doing because actually one of the one of the interesting things about this war that you can 
watch everything in real time because of social media and Ignatius was filming how he was rescuing people from the very front line. And it was shocking because, first of all, he came from Russia. He was a British national who lived in Moscow at that time. His mom is also a Russian, an activist and journalist. And he just decided to come immediately. And for him, it's something natural to risk his life, to evacuate people in danger. But it looks completely bizarre from a side. It's absolutely necessary because a lot of people at the front line, they cannot think soberly anymore because they have been living in such conditions for quite some time. They get adapted and they perceive the reality in kind of a distorted way. They don't see all the dangers, even if they are literally at the front line and where the shell can hit their house at any moment. So he's doing some tremendous work. He's not alone. He has a couple of friends, some not a very big team that is going back and forth uh, to evacuate people. And he's doing it with his own effort, with the help of donations. And it's quite impressive. The situation with civilians is quite grim because, as I've said, not so many people realize the dangers and they wait till the last moment to leave and it's thanks to Ignatius probably that so many people have been able to to leave otherwise they would be trapped there yeah so I decided to do this interview because I think these people who are maybe not so known so visible they are actually heroes that rescue a lot of lives is there a specific story that you can share with us I mean there are so many of these stories some of them are very sad because people wait till the last moment to be evacuated and eventually it becomes too dangerous. So there were stories when uh, he continuously asked someone to evacuate and they didn't want to and eventually they were trapped and he couldn't get there anymore or because the front line is moving. So it's, it's also impossible to get anywhere you want. There were stories when um, adult children evacuated but their parents didn't want to leave and children had this guilt and responsibility to evacuate their parents and there were moments when Ignatius and his team were not able to get there on time. These stories are very heartbreaking. For example, during winter the situation was very dire and he was saying that uh, one daughter wanted to evacuate her father but eventually he just froze to death because he didn't want to leave and he didn't survive the winter. He stayed in his home and was, do you know if this was a house or an apartment or? Most probably an apartment because in apartment blocks, it's much harder to survive the winter, especially like last winter, like in the front line, there was no gas, nothing in the apartments. As Ignatius said, like if you live in a private house, it's kind of okay, you can you can at least make fire and uh, do something uh, like to heat your house. But if it's an apartment block, you can't do anything. And like the, some temperatures during the winter were really freezing. So older people did not survive. That is so heartbreaking, freezing to death in your yeah. apartment. A lot of older sick people didn't want to leave, even though there was no medical treatment, no health care, nothing. And I think, we don't know the exact number, but I think there are a lot of such losses just because of people's stubbornness, because they fear of the unknown. They don't know where to go and they don't want to leave their place when they're old. 
Do you know where these people that Ignatius and his team are able to get out, where they're being taken? They are taken to the nearest relatively safe towns and cities, and then they spend there several nights, and then volunteers find a new location for them. So they go further to the west of Ukraine, where it's safer, or some of them uh, were also able to be replaced outside of Ukraine. So Ignatius told me that they were able to relocate people to Finland, uh, Austria, and other countries. But that depends on the willingness of a person to go, for sure. They're getting out of Ukraine altogether in yeah. some cases. They don't take them directly, but they look for opportunities to find a new house. They give them some money, probably. They look for volunteers who could later take care of them. And you say that his entire mission is financed through donations? Is that coming from social yeah. media? Yeah, so his Instagram page is quite active, and he constantly posts stories. He always gives reports on what they've done, what they need, uh, where they're going. He's very open about their work and uh, their needs. So I think just also because the people see the bravery, what they're doing is extraordinary. So that's why they have support from followers on Instagram or on Twitter. Your social media presence is quite pronounced. Can you Tell us about your YouTube channel and how to access that. Yes, the YouTube channel where I'm producing video is the YouTube channel of the Kiev Independent. It's not my private channel. But of course, since I'm a video reporter, I'm part of this process, this work. So right now it's still in the development phase, but we're trying our best and we're trying to publish every few days. Every week we have a podcast with Anastasia Lapatino on YouTube, and I'm trying to make more and more explainers, sometimes interviews. Also, my colleagues contribute to our video team, so I invite everyone to follow our YouTube channel of the Kiev Independent. I'm sure you can learn a lot about Ukraine because we're trying to take a more unusual focus compared to mass international media because we are Ukrainians and we try to present topics that many media don't cover and also present our view on the situation. Since we live in Ukraine and we have maybe more knowledge of some context or some background than other journalists. Irina Matvish, and I thank you so much. I understand that you've been so busy and I appreciate Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for yours. I have one small question. At the end of each interview, mm-hmm. we play a song that's underneath the credits. Is there a song in particular you would like us to play? <laughs> um, I think uh, what symbolizes Ukraine right now is this song, Oy Uluzi Chervona Kalina, which has been used as a resistance to oppressive regimes since early 20th century. And I think it's quite in the spirit of Ukraine right now. We'll be happy to play that for you. Good night. Good night, good night. Chernova Kalina by the opera singers at Jagiris Arena. Our thanks to Irina Matvijin, video reporter at the Kiev Independent. 
Visit TeeveIndependent.com for all of their reports and for the links to their YouTube channel. Irina Matvishin previously worked as a freelance journalist with the BBC, NPR, and other media outlets. She was an analyst, video producer, and project coordinator at Ukraine World. Music, Odiseo i Mote by Boginia Dub. Editing, Ursula Rudenberg. And recording, Michael Levine. To see photographs of Irina Matvijin and all of our guests, and to access our complete library of shows, go to ukraine242.com. This is Anne Levine, reporting from WOMR Provincetown. Until next week on Ukraine 242. Oh,